Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by No Dice Collective. I'm Joe Chesterman-March and today, along with Hugh Morris, I'm talking to Vijay Ayer, which is a real treat because Vijay is a big deal. In many ways, it's hard to describe succinctly what Vijay does because he seems to do so many different things. Vijay is signed to ECM, where recordings of his trio and sextet can be found. He has worked with Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble. He has written violin concertos for Jennifer Coe and also written for the LA Phil New Music Group. This year he was the composer in residence at Wigmore Hall and we talk a little bit about his time there and his thoughts on decolonizing the concert hall. That's at the end of the episode and it's well worth waiting for. Some of the other things that we discuss in this episode are being a music maker, breaking down those boundaries, deconstructing those concepts like being a composer or a performer or playing jazz or classical. And Vijay explains his process for introducing improvised elements into his music for classical ensembles and how his own tuition on the violin, which was his first instrument, has rendered him unable to improvise on it. We also talk about his piece Emergence, which Hugh Morris recommended as No Dice's piece of the month last month and was the reason that I got in touch with Vijay in the first place. So I'm going to hand over to Hugh to explain a little bit about his background with Vijay and then we're going to dive into it. Hi, I'm Hugh Morris. I'm a musician, composer, writer based in Manchester, and I'm one of the guest interviewers on today's edition of the No Dice podcast. And we're interviewing composer, musician extraordinaire Vijay Ayer. I first came across Vijay after a University of Manchester big band rehearsal. We were in the pub and chatting about all the new music that we were listening to, and I wanted to find new things to broaden my understanding of the music that we were playing. And one of the players mentioned that he was working on this VJI piece for his final recital. So I went straight onto Spotify and I found VJ's Accelerando uh, release and was sort of infatuated with them a little bit. And then he toured to Manchester. Uh, I found myself working at an opera festival in Buxton and I had one day off in the month and the day that I chose was to go and see uh, Vijay's trio at Band on the Wall in Manchester and it totally blew me away. I remember coming out at the interval feeling just so many emotions. Uh, I don't normally talk about music taking me on a journey per se, um, but I was the most affected by Vijay's trio performance uh, than I think I have been by any other gig. It was just such a direct expression of feeling and emotion. And I've always been interested in his music and it's a big privilege to welcome him to this podcast. How are you finding lockdown at Harvard? How are your students managing? I'd say overall, students were able to um, make the most of a strange situation and found ways to make music together, found ways to be in conversation and in engage with material. Between mid-March and early May, they made an entire album, <laughs> which um, wow. I could send you a link because it, it's quite fantastic. It's not just proof of concept. It's actually really compelling to hear where mm. young people are at, at this moment in history, you know, to understand not just the um, technical capacity that they were able to showcase, but also the emotional inner landscape brought on by the pandemic and by the historical concerns of the moment, you know, the, not just the pandemic itself, but the certainly in the US, the sinking realization that the impact is unequally distributed and most intensely impacting communities of color, Black and Latinx communities especially. So, you know, I think that that's shaken all of us. And it certainly shook the students, you know, 
that course in particular had mostly younger students in freshman and sophomore years in college. You know, the majority of them were 18 or 19 years old to basically witness how they deal with it, how they chose to respond creatively in the face of it um, was very uh, heartening. It gave me a sense that we we may indeed have a future, mm-hmm. all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> you know, I should say that like the premise is that they're all composer performers, you know, and I even sort of dispel that terminology because it's a little bit freighted with um, sort of systemic markers of what is and is not music, for example, you know. And so I just use the term music makers because that's um, a bit more capacious and, you know, allows a bit of mobility. We're not sort of concerned with the identity of a composer, for example. You know, it's more about like, what are we doing right now together? How do we make music? Which is more than performing the work of a composer, right? It's something about being involved in the musical moment to the point that you affect it. You're you're affected by your presence and that if you were to be replaced, then the music would sound different. This is um, Wadada Leo Smith's definition of a creative musician is one who impacts and influences what the music sounds like to the extent that if you were to replace them, the music would be different. So that's kind of the ethos that we're rolling with. (laughs) And, um, And so that meant that they were all making their own music. You know, they're all making music on their own terms. And we don't need to call it anything more than that, except basically to just value that process. Yeah, absolutely. I find that an interesting contrast that your work brings up with coming at it from the classical angle or the classical musician angle, where the default is perhaps less composer performer and more just performer. And I was thinking how it feels like there's such a restriction on what you're able to bring to the table if you don't have a native vocabulary for your instrument that, that doesn't rely on a score. Obviously, you've written for orchestral ensembles. I wondered how you navigated that with the quote-unquote classical performers. Navigated the what in particular about it, about that? The lack of uh, improvisational skill, perhaps. Well, this is a a funny point. Um, There's a tradition, certainly, of composers um, asking instrumentalists to make decisions in the course of performance. Those decisions could be about how to play, or they could be about when to play, (laughs) or what to play, you know? And that's part of the history of notation. If you look at the Bach cello suites, for example, compared to the way contemporary notation tends to work, Bach's music was radically underspecified in terms of dynamics, tempo, timbre, articulation, all the things we think of as technique, you know? <laughs> so like, uh, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what makes them endlessly worthy of revisiting is that you can have a life with one of those pieces of music. You know, you can revisit them throughout your life and find something new or in yourself through them, you know? So that's a different approach than the kind of micromanaging that one tends to see in contemporary notated music. Mm. And that, you know, like we can look at plenty of 20th century examples of composers, um, inviting performers into a less overdetermined relationship to the score. Penderecki, Lutoslavsky, certainly Cage, and, and then the whole Fluxus movement, Steve Reich, 
Pauline Oliveros's text scores, and so forth. There's like a whole tradition of this stuff, and certainly in American music and and British music too, for example. So it's not a new idea to invite performers to exert their own agency in some way in the course of performance. And so like part of that for me was just tapping into those histories. So my piece Mutations, which I wrote in 2005, and it was released on an album in 2014 under the same title. So that piece, um, it involves different real-time processes as well as notated processes. It's not really trying to be a unified statement, but it's working from the same constellation of concepts around change and growth and evolution and deformity even. So I just tried, I found different ways to try to implement that, including my own ways of making decisions as a pianist, as a music maker, but also inviting the string quartet I was playing with the string quartet, inviting them to find specific ways of relating to one another. One, for example, is there's a movement that's mostly text that just asks them to play a unison glissando that's very slow, that takes the entire length of the movement. Okay, so that requires a kind of tuning in that is um, specific and refined and has no real notational correlate you know like you can't say that you're on this bar and therefore you should be this pitch you actually just have to listen to each other and find it together so that kind of process of listening and relating and deciding collectively that is what i wanted to put in the hands of the performers okay and that sounds like a very simple gesture what i just mentioned a unison glissando there's more to it because it actually has to be endless so it actually is um what's called a shepherd tone. It's an illusion of an mm, yeah. endlessly ascending pitch, but it doesn't ever leave the range of human hearing. So basically they had to figure out how to do that, and they could. So in another piece, another piano quintet of mine called Time, Place, Action, I asked them to do something that I call flocking, which is um, to improvise a unison line or not even improvise, but to just collectively create a unison line. I find that when you use the word improvise, people sort of freak out because they think that suddenly they need to play a burning solo on giant steps yeah. or play the blues or something like that. And, <laughs> and it, actually, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking them to just relate, listen, decide, and act together. You know, and that's that's just being human. You know, it's not genre-specific or anything. But to ask people to um, produce a unison line among four instrumentalists, how do you do that? And there's no leader. That's the idea, that no one is saying we're changing now. It's actually a collective process of listening, moving, relating, and they're able to do it. You know, so these are the sorts of very basic, simple things I asked them to do. Another was I gave them a in the other piece in Mutations, I gave them this, what I call a gesture palette, which is a set of notated material, a couple of pages worth, that they're asked to just dip into, grab a small chunk of it on their own, and interpret it. So that act of interpreting as itself, like that's what classically trained musicians are good at doing, at deciding how to play a little fragment of music. How loud, how soft, how fast, with what kind of sound, with what kind of articulation, with what kind of energy or character or mood. Those parameters are all decided by musicians all the time. So just inviting them to engage in that process, but also to do it collectively in the sense that this kind of um, chorusing is happening among the ensemble. 
through all of them navigating these pages of existing material and putting them together in this mosaic or in this patchwork and then music emerging from that process. So these kinds of things, I mean, basically, which then gives them the sense that they're co-constructing the music, that they have some kind of say or some kind of influence over what happens and when and how. Fiche, I just wonder, um, the reframing of agency is so paramount in your work. When you come to working with musicians who play a lot of new music, do you ever find because of the there's a hyper specific mode of notation that often gets uh they get pieces with a million notes in them do you ever find that there's any sort of resistance to this kind of reframing of of agency i remember a story of a friend who went into a new music workshop with some similar sorts of ideas and uh and and the performer turned around and said oh um i don't improvise uh and uh yeah, I wonder if there was ever um, any sort of resistance to that or times where you maybe felt that the idea that you had in your head didn't perhaps come out in the way that you perhaps imagined it? You know, these pieces in which I perform, like these piano quintets, for example, the two I mentioned, mutations and time, place, action. So I'm playing, in these cases, with classical string quartet musicians. Basically, I try to make it so that we're on equal footing, you know, so that we're like in it together. I mean, certainly I'm going to do things that they wouldn't do or they don't necessarily imagine themselves doing. And also they're doing things that I am not good at doing. So we're kind of finding a center together. Like, how do we now relate knowing that we are coming from different places and that we just sort of spend time finding that place. I mean, it's not even about whether they're so-called new music or not, which I find actually to be a bit of an abusive label that I tend to <laughs> Sorry. not use. No, it's fine. I mean, it's like, it is, it's here. It's here to stay. What can I say? But it's like, I made some music today. Is it new? Is it new music? <laughs> I mean, like, what, I don't know what that means, but, um, it's a particularly broad label, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's broad and yet it really isn't because it's used it's used to exclude people is what it is. It's what, you know, it's sort of like, oh, well, this is what we're doing. You're not doing that. So you don't get to be in our, so I, I guess I don't, I don't take it too seriously. I'll put it that way. I know that it's around and I understand what people mean by it, but I don't, I, I don't need to use it. Hmm. It's not, I mean, I also, for that matter, don't use the word jazz really ever, except when forced to, but it's not like, it's not a useful term to me. I mean, lately, I don't even love the term composition or the implied separation that it kind of enforces composition. And then performance is sort of like the outcome of composition, but it sort of suggests that there's no middle ground or that there's no other way of making music. So the reason I use music making <laughs> as the kind of like most broad and, you know, and it places a slightly different emphasis and it maybe allows in different value systems for what music making ever... might mean. Sorry. Um, um, I, do... didn't, I didn't finish answering your previous question. What I was going to say is that um, it's okay. No, no. I'm just being really long winded here. <laughs> what I was going to say is that, uh, People fear the idea of improvisation if they're from a tradition that stamps it out of them. And I guess I should say that I was a classical violinist. That was my first instrument, and it was. Um, I also was a freewheeling piano by ear kid. So I, so I was doing both of these things simultaneously. I was taking violin lessons in a pretty regimented style, 
And then I was banging away on my sister's piano. So those two things both formed me as a music maker. But I, in particular, know what it feels like to have the capacity to improvise stamped out of me. Which is because, like, even to this day, I'm not an improviser on the violin. You know, I just started playing it when I was three. And I was trained how to never improvise. <laughs> and, and, like, I can't, I can't hear my way out of it, you know, in, in the way that, like, for me at the piano, almost all that I do is improvise, but at the, on the violin, I can't. So I know what that feels like to have that capacity shut down. Uh, and it's a human capacity that we all have. So I could understand when musicians would respond with um, even hostility, but certainly anxiety or fear or, or, um, or if they just freeze, you know. And so we just kind of work through it together. And that was, to me, the most important thing is that we could work through it together. How do you want to play this? When do you want to play it? In what relation to the other musicians? Like these are things that classical musicians already do, especially chamber musicians. They already do this. So this is about tapping in to what they already are able to do and are already, in fact, great at doing. Yeah, so it seems like almost a, a middle way of sorts is is required when bringing together two uh, different traditions. So you're both kind of speaking the same language, as it were. You're, you're both working from the same place. Does that sound right? Um well, somewhat, yeah. I mean, I, um, I am not sure that there are two different traditions. I think that difference is enforced, but it's not real. It's no more real than a national border is real. Like, it doesn't affect geography. It's a political boundary. Like, I might stand on the northern edge of Washington State, for example, here in the U.S., in the northwestern United States. There's a border there between the U.S. and Canada, and that border governs the way people conduct themselves, <laughs> but it does not affect the landscape. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I'm talking about is like what we've known is that Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Charles Mingus and Mary Lou Williams and Nina Simone, they all listened and understood and studied and learned music from these European traditions. So it's not like it's external <laughs> to this whole world, you know, it's we're on the same planet. We're part of the same system. Yeah, no, and I, I totally understand that. It seems that, you know, classical musicians, uh, I don't know how else to refer to them as a group, sorry. Um, classical musicians listen to jazz and maybe play it, and jazz musicians listen to classical and, and are perfectly capable of, of playing it, as people like Nina Simone demonstrate very clearly. And that, like you say, that crossover is very much imagined to a certain extent. But it does also seem real in the sense that as someone who was trained classically, I would feel very out of my depth joining in a jam session or something like that, that although, you know, we're all humans on the planet with, with an instrument and, and the possibilities for that instrument are very broad, the skills that are taught are different. Well, I guess my point was that it's not that I didn't mean to make this seem like a benign we're all one big happy family. That's not what the point I was. I wasn't trying to say that. If that's how it came out, then I should try again. Because actually what I was trying to say is that the system of music that it goes under the name classical or European classical, in particular Western classical music, or even the system called new music, which is like 
basically the, I don't know, the grandchild of classical music or whatever. They are exclusionary systems that are predicated on a pan-European nationalism. And so they tend to assert and maintain a fiction that everything else is outside it. You know, I also don't use the term classical music because I find it to be actually this abusive system that excludes, that it only does is exclude. And that exclusion is predicated on white supremacy. I don't, um, you know, it can always be said, well, yes, there are black composers. Or there's me, for example, I'm a brown-skinned composer. <laughs> but I'm also aware that I'm not always called a composer. And that is the real problem. Who gets to have that kind of power over others? Because that's what composing means, is that you get to govern the actions of others. So that's the real question <laughs> for me. I try to strive to dismantle these fictions in my own work as an artist and as a tier. Do you ever find it difficult to express yourself in words? Because as you rightly question the terms classical and jazz and new music, absolutely rightly so. Do you ever find that when you're expressing yourself in words that you sometimes find yourself lost for words in, in some ways? Because certainly I do <laughs> when, uh, when, when talking in a deconstructive tone. Loss for words? Well, yeah, I mean, I probably just use too many, <laughs> which is usually <laughs> a symptom of me um, searching for the right way to say something. But it's also, you know, nothing I'm saying right now is new to this planet. So like somebody else already pointed this out and studied it and written about it. Many, in fact, many people have. And so a lot of where this is coming from is me studying the um, discourses of refusal particularly those that have come from African-American artists across the last century or more. talk a little bit about Emergence, the, uh, the piece for trio and orchestra, which we made our piece of the month and that you can check out on the No Dice blog. Just, just wondering if you could uh, introduce the piece and tell us a little bit about how it came about and the main source of principles of it, because I think it's a really interesting one. Sure. It was um, commissioned by this jazz festival in Poland, taking place at the National Center of Music, it's, I think it's called. And it's basically like the Carnegie Hall of Poland. So they invited me to um, create a piece that would augment my group and work with them. But yeah, I spent months working on that piece. So I wanted to, again, kind of like, in a way, underspecify the, um, the details of the orchestration to the point that the trio would, would have a range of expressive possibility within it, you know, so that we wouldn't have to play in a specific way at a specific moment. We could actually kind of breathe in the moment and kind of be essentially a chamber ensemble. The other thing was that I wanted us to kind of um, drive the ensemble from within. The challenge I've always um, 
experienced in transitioning to these larger formats is the role of the conductor. In the big band tradition, the pulse is generated from within the ensemble and specifically from the so-called rhythm section, piano, bass, and drums, and maybe guitar. So that was kind of how I wanted us to function, not as this like cluster of soloists out in front of the orchestra, but rather stationed more like the rhythm section of a big band. So we were actually behind the orchestra, which kind of startled them because they weren't used to having drums behind them, for example. But it allowed us to have a more equal relationship with the conductor then. And so that's, to me, one of the most challenging things in moving across these communities between the jazz and creative music world, which is basically a groove-based world, and the orchestral world, which is um, where tempo is fluid. And tempo is itself an expressive parameter. So that was kind of like one of the challenges we wanted to address was how could we negotiate tempo as this larger aggregate from these two pretty differing sensibilities about tempo. And then finally, like, what is the role of real-time creation in this piece? So there is this kind of, um, I don't know, someone called it a Chernobyl moment about towards the end of the piece (laughs) where it's sort of like, it feels like all hell breaks loose. Because, because yeah. um, suddenly uh, we've gone from a pretty clearly governed situation in terms of tempo and texture and balance and stuff to something else that's like um, marketplace or something. It sounds like contentious and divergent actions, but some of it is unified. Like some of, I guess, this is one of these moments where the orchestra members are invited to choose from a range of possible actions. But many of those decisions are relational in the sense like actually linking with other musicians and taking action together, like playing in unison with someone else or matching or relating to the tempo of somebody else. Uh, So you would find these like kind of pockets of emergent order, which is partly why it's called emergence. And especially this was challenging for me at that moment, working with a Polish ensemble who, you know, we were complete foreigners to them. And, you know, when you have this procedure like that, where ensemble members have to make decisions on their own, and you're essentially, as a composer, you're ceding control to them in that moment. I'll just put it bluntly. Um, how do you prevent them from making light or mocking the situation? (laughs) What do you give them to sort of like reframe it so that it's not a joke? Because the initial impulse is that this is a joke. You know, well, he didn't write this part. He failed or he kind of like (laughs) abdicated his responsibility as a composer. He didn't know what to do, Mm. which is exactly not the case. Like I knew exactly what I was doing. I did this on purpose (laughs) because I wanted to stage that drama of myself abdicating control. And that was kind of, I'd say, the heart of the struggle. But I'd say that they they met me there. So I was pleased with how it all went. How much of that process was with you guys in the same room? Or did you have to do a lot of this ahead of time and a lot of it thinking in your head, oh, how will they react? How can I preempt that? This was like a luxurious... You know, usually, I mean, certainly, I don't know how it is with British ensembles, but certainly, like, if I work with an American orchestra, it's hemorrhaging money every minute, (laughs) you know? So, like, you can't, you don't have time to waste on stuff like this, Mm -hmm. you know? 
that then sort of limits the format essentially because like of how much it costs to pull this off. In this case, they are all receiving state funding and um, no one seems to mind that they could spend a week with us. <laughs> and so wow. we actually had quite a I lot of time. To yeah, exactly. It might be the way. <laughs> so that was kind of, for me, the luxury of this was like, oh, we can actually figure out how to do this together. By comparison, like my first orchestral piece called Interventions, that's from 2007. And I wrote it for American Composers Orchestra. Piece is like 18 minutes long. I think we had a total of 70 minutes of rehearsal. And that was generous. What? So um, that's the norm here. It's rare to have like the real resources to achieve something like nuance. I mean, I should say that it hasn't been my universal experience with orchestras, but um, that was like the kind of, that's the norm, I'd say. And what's the appeal of working with an orchestra in the first place? <laughs> um yeah, that's a good question. Considering how much work you put in, it's like nine months of your life to create a half hour of music, you know, like, is that worth it? I don't know. Um, but it's also like, um, well, certainly the range of colors, right? If you really believe in that, uh, in the the palette and, and want to explore mm. that palette and uh, what it represents, Knowing that it's a rare treat, a rare opportunity, a rare treat that's afforded only a few people and not very often, even those people. So I don't know. I guess I wanted to try to rise to it. So that, uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, this gave me a nice range of ways of relating to an ensemble. And that was important for me, the prospect of doing that. I saw some footage of you when you were working, I think it was Trouble with Jennifer Coe, mm -hmm, and you were mm -hmm. sat in the audience listening to the orchestra playing. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's not your usual home because your usual home is behind the piano as part of the ensemble, even if it's your own composition, you're part of the music making. And mm -hmm. that must have been a very different experience, that separation for you. Oh, it's a good feeling. I like, um, <laughs> I like uh, just sitting still and then getting to take a bow afterwards. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's a good feeling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't take it lightly either. It's um, it's like I said earlier, what it means to get to be a composer is that you get to govern the actions of others. So that's an ethical relation that is then set up where you basically have power. <clears throat> so what do you do with that power? That's the question, you know. And so that's kind of, I guess, what I try to ask in the music itself what am I as a composer doing with my power over you, the player, or you, the listener, you know?
piece, time, place, action at some point, um, give it a premiere Great. outside the US. But Yeah, I mean, I was supposed to do it at Wigmore Hall last month. Uh, it was one of right. the many casualties yeah. of the pandemic. So yeah. I hope we um, I hope we have a chance someday. Speaking of Wigmore Hall, I was just wondering if we could maybe talk a little bit about your artist residency there. And a particular interest to me was your work with the Ritual Ensemble. And I was wondering if you could maybe introduce your work with them. Sure. Um, first of all, yes, I was named composer in residence at Wigmore Hall. And I decided to, like I've been saying, kind of unpack or even undo some of that (laughs) in the choices I made. (laughs) What does it mean to compose or to be a composer or who gets to claim that mantle? I ended up doing three of the four planned concerts. The fourth was going to be a performance of all these notated works of mine, including one that Wigmore Hall had co-commissioned and that I hope gets to happen down the line. Um, I know that they're... Or they'll have a hard time managing all the cancellations in the coming years. But um, yes, that was a pretty important, that was going to be a hugely important day for me because it was going to bring together a lot of these different threads that are very important to me. Um, But what I did manage to do were two concerts in September. One was a duo concert of spontaneously created music, uh, myself and the pianist Craig Taborn. That same evening, I did a duo concert with the um, poet and electronic musician Mike Ladd, who is also a longtime collaborator of mine. We've been working together since 2002 or so. And then the third episode was this concert of the Ritual Ensemble, which is a, a, a group that came together in the basement of Harvard's music department, <laughs> I guess I'll put it that way, which is like figurative <laughs> and literal sort of underneathness. It's um, two of my graduate students, two doctoral students in the program that I founded there. The program is called Creative Practice and Critical Inquiry. Both of them happen to have backgrounds in Carnatic music, South Indian classical music. Um, And also both of them have collaborated across many musical communities and different artistic disciplines even. So, and then the fourth member is my colleague at Harvard, who's a longtime friend and, and collaborator named Yosvani Terry. He um, is an Afro-Cuban musician, saxophonist and percussionist and composer. So it's, again, like like the other two collaborations, there it's sort of proceeded organically from individual creative relationships and became its own thing. So then what does it mean for me as composer in residence to bring these particular kinds of projects to the table. Part of what it does is it cracks open the very idea of composer and the relationship between composer and performer. And um, it starts to undo that relationship, you know, and, and ask the audience to rethink that their own relationship to the function of a composer. So that was kind of my agenda there. But then, of course, it was supposed to culminate in me acting in the more traditional sense as a composer with these mm-hmm. with members of Aurora Ensemble, which um, we even rehearsed and everything, so we were all ready to go. I'm really sorry that that didn't happen. But, um, yeah, someday, someday. Someday the whole story will be... Th- it's sort of like acts one through three. But And then also I had this nice um, conversation with Georgina Bourne, the yeah. music scholar 
from Oxford, which mm-hmm. became a podcast uh, on musicalities and musical experience. And that was really nice. I find the Wigmore Hall a particularly striking environment for you to be in, to be uh, almost, I, I think you said that you often find yourself not supporting classical music, but trying to work around it or under it. <laughs> and uh, I think there's probably no more extreme version than the Wigmore Hall, which, uh, as my dad used to put it, is is full of cauliflower heads, <laughs> is how he refers <laughs> so to funny. the audience. <laughs> Hilarious. I, um, you know, I, it wasn't my first time there. I had you know, also in that year, I was the so-called jazz artist in residence or jazz something, something with the word jazz in it. So I actually played three concerts mm. there that year. One was in duo with Wadada Leo Smith. Another was with the trio. And the third was with Sextet. What I'm saying is that I've already had an ongoing relationship with that place. But this was kind of reframed in a way where the word jazz was sort of taken mm. out of it. And so that allowed me maybe to, um, I mean, I did what I wanted to do anyway, <laughs> I should say that. <laughs> but, um, uh, and even like the duo with without Leo Smith, I'm not sure everybody would call that a jazz duo. I don't know if I would, I probably <laughs> wouldn't ever actually, but, um, <clears throat> I know he wouldn't, he hates that word. So, and that's what I was mentioning earlier, this like discourse of refusal that's part of African-American culture. It's like we reject the terms on which you are trying to govern us. You know, it's that kind of thing. Anyway, I guess I felt that, uh, I remember like making a remark to them, like, hey, maybe it's time to, I was backstage with one of the uh, event producers there. And I was saying like, oh, maybe it's time to put my picture on the wall. (laughs) Because I don't know if you've been backstage there, but it's like, a lot of it's the, like a who's who of it's uh, a who's who of Eurocentric classical music, right? Mm. So there aren't there aren't many faces of color there. Maybe Mitsuko Uchida is the is one of the few, um, mm. but yeah, definitely not many faces representing other musical systems or practices. So, and apparently, someone told me my friend Mishka Rushdie Momin is a fantastic pianist played there recently she said that she saw my face on the wall so i guess they oh nice took it up. i guess i'm a regular now i'm a i'm official i am somebody <laughs> you've made it yeah do you feel like your work there as representing someone outside of that very white european tradition is that a way forward for an institution like that or do you feel that classical music is just so inherently based and anchored in its tradition and its history that it's a real uphill battle to move forward from that? Well, the typical strategy is to start incorporating in a kind of tokenistic way, exemplars of difference. And I even felt that my presence there was sort of that, um, as as kind and generous as they were to me, that I felt a little bit like I was somebody's experiment or stunt or something like that. Um, John Galuli was he. This was in the works for years, and so I don't take it lightly. Again, I take it very seriously that they, especially that this was the alignment in the kind of Beethoven year, and they sort of played that up mm. a little bit. That like, hey, Beethoven was a composer pianist. Here's another one, you know. <laughs> All right. <okay. laughs> so I don't, you know, that's like 
that's pretty um that's pretty bold to make that alignment to to kind of like suggest that there's something there to talk about and i was open to it uh, you know and particularly i think they played up the fact that beethoven also improvised and so on so as long as the term classical music exists it's going to be bound up with a history of exclusion so i don't really see any way around that even as it strives to be inclusive, it's still bound up with a pan-European nationalism. There's no way around that. That's just what that term means. What I was trying to do is like suggest that we don't need to accept those terms. So I um, would love to see that crack open. I don't know that it's going to happen anytime soon in the concert halls of Europe even if they might have their occasional jazz series or sort of weirdo whom they employ to put on a few concerts <laughs> now and then. It's still not going to be the prevailing order of things, you know? So I I think there's much more to do to, dis- to dismantle these systems that are oppressive. Uh, sorry, this is asking a lot of you, but what would you say would be an exemplar if you could just take over a concert hall in the UK or the US or somewhere? and say, this is what we're going to do to try and improve the situation, to, to, to make it better, to make it more inclusive and more representative of the people that it's trying to reach with these kind of outreach slash diversity efforts. Uh, again, it's a big ask, but uh, do you know what you do? Well, I'd say that curatorial control would have to be shared among many who um, share these goals of not just diversifying, but decolonizing these institutions. <laughs> and then it's the question of also who are the stakeholders and what are their investments in maintaining these systems? You know, like who supports Wigmore Hall? And are they interested in any kind of change? The so-called cauliflower heads, do they want, you know, are they interested in change? What, you know, probably, mm. I don't know, probably not, right? So, you know, it's kind of about to whom is a is a venue or an institution like that accountable? Um, does it see itself as accountable to its, what's the abbreviation you guys use? B-A-M-E, Black, Asian, Middle Eastern. Right, yeah. To those communities that are, that certainly like populate London. And even like, you know, I remember going to a bunch of Indian and Sri Lankan and basically non-Western restaurants around Wigmore Hall. So like, I know that there are such people around, but is there, are they there merely to feed and entertain or are they like really treated as constituents of the same community? So it's sort of a sense of what do we mean by us? That's the question. Can we enlarge our notion of who we mean by us? That was basically the point I was trying to make in that conversation with Georgina Bourne. Hmm. The remarks I made were about that, were about the notion of us. Now, basically, like what we think music is, is bound up with who we think we are as a we, as an us, as some kind of notion of community or something like that. So, so it's basically what that means is that it actually lives in the hearts and minds of people who maintain these systems and benefit from them. Mm. So there's a lot to do. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of like revolutionary sentiment that I'm expressing here is like, let's, what if we dismantled all of it? Was I remotely successful in doing that? Probably not. But um, at least I put those ideas into the atmosphere, you know? Yeah. Mm. It's an idea that fights with the idea of a niche venue, I think, in in many ways. Mm. Mm. 
where the Wigmore Hall serves a very specific audience and, and tries to do that really well. And with, you know, they're, they're famous for a really exemplar acoustic for oh, yeah. orchestral instruments. I, like, I'm sure there were uh, kind of balance issues, even just micing you guys up in that kind of small space. It is definitely the best acoustic I've ever. It's like known the world over for this mm. particular. I yeah. mean, including, you know, classical musicians I work with here who are esteemed and who are cream of the crop in that world, they all drool over the acoustics of Wigmore Hall. <laughs> it's not like it's just this kind of myth that needs to die. It's actually true about that room that there's something really special about it about what it sounds like, what it does to the music, for the music, how it supports the music, and how it supports the listening process. Yeah, so I believe that that room has untapped potential still in what musicians of the world could do there. That's definitely. <laughs> I was just kind of um, thinking it through. And of course, there are small ensembles around the world, aren't there? That, because it's not like you could fit an orchestra in there. It's not like think you could fit every ensemble that meets the... Uh, the the genre classification of classical it's it's small ensemble space and yeah. there are there are plenty of groups around the world that that would you know fill that space right uh, do you have any other questions Hugh I don't want to take up too much of your time Vijay um I think I'm I'm pretty much done I mean it's been an education on my end <laughs> oh, great. it's been wonderful <laughs> thank you guys yeah I've I've really enjoyed having to uh, raid your 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 archive at speed <laughs> and and listen to your talks it's been uh we didn't really touch on it but the the idea of genre and changing that to an idea of, of communities of real people individuals has changed the way i think that's great i'm glad to hear that i'm glad i could be a part of your journey <laughs> in some small way thank you so much to vijay for talking to us on the podcast it's been a real education and I hope you enjoyed that conversation and found it as valuable as I did. If you want to listen to his piece, Emergence, you can do so in the show notes. We're not going to add a half hour piece to the end of the podcast, don't worry. When we used it as piece of the month, we had a really strong reception from it, stronger than most other pieces we put out there. So I would uh, recommend it to you. All right, that's all from me. Happy COVID and I'll see you next time. <laughs>